Uh, We're continuing our series that we've begun for the summer called Summer in the Minors. And basically this is a series where we're going through the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. And we're doing 12 sermons on the 12 minor prophets. Meaning each sermon is an overview sermon of a whole book. And there's some challenges with that. I'm used to preaching smaller portions of scripture. Maybe a few verses here or there. Maybe even a chapter. But a book, that's a little bit more challenging. Uh, And... uh, Some of these minor prophets aren't so small. Last week was Amos, nine chapters. This week is Hosea, which is 14 chapters. But we're going to give it a go. I heard this said this week, and this was greatly encouraging. It says, God sometimes blesses a poor exegesis of a bad translation of a doubtful reading of an obscure verse of a minor prophet. So praise God that he can bless uh, our weakest and most feeble efforts because it's not us. It's him. It's his power at work amongst us in the midst of our weaknesses. So turn there to Hosea, if you would. Hosea chapter 1. Please stand, if you would, as we get ready to read this passage of Scripture. We're only going to read chapter 1 this morning. But like last week, keep your Bibles open because we will be hopping to different portions of the Scripture. We will end up reading all of Hosea 1, 2, and 3. But we'll also be looking at some other portions of the book as well. But to get us started this morning, to set the stage for the whole book, we're going to read chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord says this. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel." And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take this book of Hosea and show us Jesus. We believe it harbins what Jesus said. And that is every single book of the Old Testament points to him. All the law and all the prophets, it all speaks of Jesus. But God, we are incapable of seeing it apart from your grace and your mercy. So we ask that you give us eyes to see and give us 
ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, let me just ask the kids out there a real quick question. I was a little nervous getting up to, to preach today. Um, is there anything different you notice about me today? Oh, thank you. Yes. I was hoping you weren't saying something else, but uh, good. Glasses. Yes. I've got these things on. I was very nervous preaching today. Felt a little awkward. I honestly still do with these things on my face. Now, to ask an obvious question, what are these for? What are these for? Yes. They are for reading. Okay, well, they're to help me see better. You see, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, well, actually more than a few weeks ago, I was noticing I was having a hard time seeing actually what I was preaching and and adjusting from my books to looking at the computer screen and, and decided to get these. And, and when I put them on this week, I was actually pretty surprised, despite the fact they feel a little awkward and, and seeing long distances still feels weird through these. But I could read a whole lot better and I could see the computer screen a whole lot better than I thought I could before. And I was stunned by how much they help with just the reading and just looking at my computer screen. They help you see. And as I was thinking about the awkwardness of having to get up here with these things on today, I thought, well, I'm just going to incorporate it into our illustration today. And, and I want us to think of the books of the Bible and Scripture itself like, like a pair of glasses that you put on that enable you to see what you couldn't see before. And the book of Hosea and all the minor prophets are some pretty neglected spectacles out there. A few Christians and fewer pastors actually preach through the minor prophets. So I really want us to put on these, the glasses of Hosea and ask the Lord to show us more about himself and about us. And more about Jesus from the book of Hosea. So that's what we're doing this morning. And we come to the book of Hosea. And let me give you a little bit of context, a little historical context. Um, you remember last week we read Amos. This week we're doing Hosea. That's not the same order as it is in your Bible because I'm trying to put them in what most scholars believe is the chronological order of these books. And so Hosea, just like Amos, is one of the oldest of the writing prophets. His, his, his written prophecy is one of the oldest of the, of the written prophecies. And he was writing, um, he was actually a contemporary of Amos. And he was writing somewhere in the middle of the 8th century B.C. Now only Hosea and Amos, who we read last week were actually sent by God to prophesy to the northern kingdom. Remember, that Israel had been divided into two. There were ten northern tribes made up of the northern kingdom, which they called themselves Israel or sometimes Samaria. And then there was the southern kingdom, which was made up of Judah and Benjamin, and they called themselves Judah. And Amos and Hosea were sent to the northern kingdom. Now, Amos wasn't from the northern kingdom. If you remember last week, he was, a, he was an outsider. He was from the southern kingdom, and he was a southern boy going up north to bring an unpopular message. But Hosea today is actually from the northern kingdom. Now, if you'll remember, this period that Amos and, and Hosea are prophesying is a period of great prosperity in Israel and peace. But it was a deceiving sort of peace and prosperity because underneath there was tremendous spiritual decay. Now... Hosea easily breaks up into two major parts. There are chapters 1 through 3, and there are chapters 4 through 14. So that second half is mainly the prophetic message that Hosea brought to the people of Israel. And we'll be referring to it throughout the message today. But the first part of the book of Hosea 
is about Hosea's life. There is some prophetic word in there as well, but it's mainly about Hosea's life that God was calling him to live out what he was about to prophesy. God was calling him to to live out, to be a living object lesson, if you will, of the word he was about to bring to the people of Israel. This wasn't uncommon for God to have the prophets do uh, sort of object lessons or illustrations. Jeremiah has tons of them when you read Jeremiah. And then there was uh, Isaiah who was told to walk around naked for three years. And then there was uh, Ezekiel who, who was told to lay on his side, his left side, for 390 days. There were some pretty odd and strange illustrations or object lessons that God called on his prophets of old to do. But none, I don't think, were as as personal and deeply intimate as this one in the first three chapters here. You see, because in verse 2 of chapter 1, God tells Hosea to go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. That means a prostitute. Now, this could be one of the prostitutes from the many shrine prostitutes in the land. There were these shrines to, to Baal. And, and there were these shrine cult prostitutes that served at these because Baal was the false god of fertility. And how do you worship the false god of fertility? You go and you have relationships with one of the prostitutes. So God told him to go and take a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. And why does God do this? Well, he tells us in verse 2, for, because, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea's marriage would be an object lesson that God would use to demonstrate the relationship between himself and his chosen people, Israel. So, we read in verse 3, So he went and took Gomer. I know that's not a very uh, attractive name these days. He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. Apparently Gomer was one of these prostitutes. So Hosea obeys. He goes to the red light district, finds himself a wife. The object lesson would be this. Hosea would represent God, the faithful husband with unrelenting love. And Gomer would represent God's chosen people, Israel, an adulterous and unfaithful people. But God also commanded uh, Hosea to have children with Gomer, have children of whoredom. And each child was given a unique name to further illustrate the prophecy. So in verse 3 it says, She conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. Now, it may not be easy for us to understand here uh, what Jezreel means, but basically it means to sow. It can have either, either a negative meaning or a positive meaning. Negative, like you're reaping what you sow, or, or positive, like you're sowing for a great harvest. In this case, it's used negatively to refer to the continual bloodshed in Israel. It was in Jezreel. It was in Jezreel that wicked King Ahab, at the instigation of his vicious Baal-worshipping wife Jezebel, killed Naboth, just to get his vineyard. Ahab sowed the ground with innocent blood, and later, in that same spot in Jezreel, his family would be slaughtered. Seventy of his sons would be slaughtered, and Jezebel, his wife, would be slaughtered. And they'd be slaughtered by a guy by the name of Jehu in the valley of Jezreel. So Ahab reaped what he sowed, but even Jehu was overzealous in his efforts to to carry out the divinely ordained justice, and he crossed into bloodthirsty zeal. And so the house of Jehu was to be punished as well. So in short, Hosea's first son's name was he who sows destruction. Right? Imagine that conversation. Hi, how are you? Oh, this is my son Johnny. What's your son's name? Oh, he, he who sows destruction. 
Nice to meet you. I know some boys that probably should be named he who sows destruction. But if that was bad, you should see the name of his next two kids. Verse 6 tells us that a daughter was born to Gomer, and her name was Lo-Ruhamah. Now, the ESV goes, goes ahead and translates it for us that the name was No Mercy or No Pity. Again, God is choosing these names for a reason. He says, call her no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Then in verse 8, we're told that as soon as cute little no mercy had weaned, another child, another son was born. And this child's name was to be Lo-Amin, which means not my people. Not my people. Why? The Lord tells him, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, to add even more scandal to the story, notice that, that uh, with Jezreel, the first child, we read that Gomer bore him, meaning Hosea, a son. But with the other two, it simply says she conceived and bore a daughter or a son. It doesn't use the normal formula for talking about bearing a child to a husband, meaning that more than likely, these other two children were conceived as a result of her adultery. The text does not say that she bore them to Hosea. And later we read that she did commit adultery. So these, in fact, were children of whoredom. This is the life that God called Hosea to. I am convinced that one of the reasons God wanted Hosea to marry a woman of prostitution, and not only that, but a woman who would later cheat on him and commit further adultery, was because he not only wanted to illustrate the prophecy, but he also wanted a messenger who felt the pain of an unfaithful spouse. Hosea's words had to ring all the more authentic as he prophesied about Israel's unfaithfulness and God's unrelenting love. It was tragic. It was devastating. It was a living picture of Israel's tragedy, the tragedy of their unfaithfulness before God. So I want to look at this tragic story this morning. And so if you want to look at your notes, here's the first point. Here's the first thing I want to see happen with us. Number one, let us be sickened by Israel's promiscuous conduct in this book. Let us be sickened by Israel's promiscuous conduct in this book. Now for these first couple of points in your notes, I'm going to primarily look at chapter 2. So these are words that, that are being prophesied. They're directed both at Gomer and Israel. But primarily the message is for Israel. Hosea 2 verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So there's sort of a preview of grace, but then we get into the problem here. What's the problem with Israel? Verse 2 of Hosea chapter 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For the mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. You see, Israel, like Gomer, had been unfaithful. In a sense, all sin is unfaithfulness to God. All sin at its root is dissatisfaction with what God says, with what God has done, and with who God is. And it results in an attempt to replace God with something. Some act, some thought, some belief. The sins of Israel in this book are almost too numerous to even list. Some of the sins are, are, are given to us right there at the beginning of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. 
There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds all, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. You see, there was just massive amounts of sin in Israel at the time despite their prosperity, despite their political peace. The sins of the people flowed directly out of the failure of the religious leaders. Verse 6 of chapter 4. Now this is Hosea speaking, God speaking through Hosea to the priests, to the religious leaders. Verse 6 of chapter 4. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. We see it was the religious leaders who had failed and the people followed suit. We see from Hosea's whole prophecy that there was all kinds of problems, deceitful business practices, oppression of the poor, corrupt worship, sexual immorality, greed, treachery, violence, and even human sacrifice. Chapter 13, verse 2, the second half of that verse. Those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. The pagan nations around Israel worshipped calves, images of calves, and the Baals. And since Baal was a fertility god, Baal was worshipped by sacrificing children. He was worshipped not only by sleeping with the prostitutes, but then sacrificing the children. Baal, the fertility god, is very much still worshipped in America today. There are shrines set up across this nation where sex is worshipped and the result is sacrificed. But the sin that summed up Israel's transgressions was simply the sin of idolatry. The ultimate expression of their infidelity against God. Verse 12 of chapter 4. My people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. And they have left their God to play the whore. So God declares a just sentence against his bride Israel. The evidence of their harlotry has been presented. And now the judge speaks. Let's go back to chapter 2 verse 6. Therefore, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And like a wayward wife, Israel was pursuing false gods and even gave the false gods credit for all of her blessings. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. And she did not know that it was I... Who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal? My friends, do you realize everything in your life that you used to forsake God with was given to you by God? God gave you gifts, and we turn around and worship the gifts instead of the giver. And so that's what's happening in Israel. God continues his judgment in verse 9. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. And I will take back my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. What he's saying here is he's going to strip her of all the blessings, all the peace and prosperity that she has right now. It's going to be stripped away from her in the presence of her enemies, all those nations that surrounded her, because she was whoring after their gods. Verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. So all of her religious worship that these 
false priests, these false leaders were leading her in, he was going to destroy those things. Verse 12. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And we see in the whole of Hosea's message that God's judgment is coming against his people and that it's sweeping. Hosea says that God will destroy them. He will ruin them. He will discipline them. He will devour their fields. He will make them a desolation. He will crush them. He will tear them like a lion. He will slay them. He will allow foreigners to raid them. He will bring famine upon them. And he will utterly abandon them. For they indeed were reaping what they had sowed. Hosea 8 verse 7. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. They were reaping what they had sowed. Yet God in his mercy calls on them to repent. Chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 is, is, tells us about repentance. But we read later in chapter 7 verse 14 that it wasn't true repentance. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. You see, there is a difference between repentance and regret. There is a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. There is a way to grieve before God that is simply sorrow over our idols being taken away. How many of us come and say that we're repenting before God, but really what we are is we're just upset and sad that our idol has been removed. But God knows man's sinful inability to truly repent, so he even tells them they need God's help in repenting. Hosea 12, verse 6. So you, by the help of your God... Return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. He's calling on them to, to, instead of sowing destruction in the valley of Jezreel, to sow holiness. Hosea 10 verse 12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Unfortunately though, Israel would not hear God's word that came through Amos or Hosea. In a few short years, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire would come through Israel with savage ferocity and destroy the nation. A pagan nation would be used in the hand of God as a tool to discipline his own children. And so you would think that's the end of the story. Faithless Israel, whoring Israel, adulterous Israel, getting the just judgment for her sin. But God... God is so transcendent in his nature that he, he can hate sin and hate the sinner while still loving the sinner and redeeming the sinner from sin. So the next thing I want us to see is I want us to, to let us be shocked by God's persistent love in this book. Listen to the rest of chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, therefore, now you've heard the old saying, if you see therefore, ask what it's there for. It's way overused. But let's ask what it's there for. Therefore, he just, he just listed all these things and spoke of all this judgment. And he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. He's speaking of, of bringing mercy upon his people Israel. How is it connected? What he's saying is because they won't return to me. They won't seek me. They're going to continue to whore after false gods. Therefore, I will woo them. 
Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God is going to woo her back like a lover. He is going to give her good gifts. Verse 15. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Who knows what the valley of Achor is? Not to put you on the spot. Do you remember when Joshua and the people of Israel first came into the, to the promised land? And they destroy Jericho? And they go up to, to take on the next city? And wouldn't you know it, someone in the camp began to whore after the loot that was in Jericho. And he took some of it and he hid it in his tent. It was the first place Israel began to go after false things. And God did not give them victory over the next town. They just destroyed this massive city called Jericho. Then they go up to a little town and they get whooped because of their idolatry, their unfaithfulness, their whoredom. And God is saying, I'm going I'm to reverse all that. I'm going to reverse this tragedy. I'm going to turn your tragedy into hope. And there, continuing in verse 15, And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Listen to this. It's almost as if God is speaking of a new exodus, a new freedom from slavery. Verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. Listen, friends, do you recognize this type of language? This is Eden language. This is paradise language. God is promising a new Eden, a new creation. And I will abolish the bow, he continues, the sword and the war from the land of Israel. And I will make you lie down in safety. My friends, he's speaking of a time when there will be no more war, no more destruction. God is going to give these things, all these good gifts, all these promises to an adulterous people, really? Verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. And I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. There is a new betrothal coming, new vows, new covenant. New vows that guaranteed that we will know the Lord. This is shocking language. I know some of you are already out there squirming, especially in an integrated church where some of the language Hosea has already used will squirm a little more because this word know here is the word know used in the scripture for intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. What God is saying is he is drawing us into a type of unparalleled intimacy with himself. They will be united to him, one with him, a wedding day yet to come. Verse 21. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. Oh, friends, I hope you see what God is talking about here. This is far more than any sort of promise of any sort of restoration of an ethnic Israel or some Middle Eastern nation state. You see, Israel is about to be wiped off the planet. 
Ten tribes would be absorbed into Assyria. Later, Judah would go into exile as well, but would return from exile. And they would also return with some of the other Israelites. But for the most part, these ten tribes were lost, dispersed into the nations. And even those who did return with Judah never experienced what is mentioned here. Nothing close to it. This is something supernatural. This is something that God would do and is doing and will finish through Christ Jesus. You see, all those united to Christ who is the obedient son who didn't stray in the wilderness. All those united to Jesus who is the true Israel. The one who would never stray in horror after other gods. All those who are united to him by faith are the recipients of this promise. Because all the promises find their yes and amen in him. Matthew tells us so much in his gospel. He calls Jesus the new Israel when he quotes Hosea 11 verse 1. Here's what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Do you see, for Hosea, son equals Israel. But for Matthew, son equals Jesus. Jesus is the obedient son. My friends, we read our Bibles interpreting the Old Testament in the light of the New That's how we define the types and the shadows. That's how we understand the relationship between Israel and the church. That's how we understand the end times, by reading the Old Testament in the light of the New. Any system that requires you to interpret the New in the light of the Old needs to be reexamined. How were these promises of God kept? They were kept in Christ. They find their yes and amen in Him. Christ is the only obedient Son, the only covenant-keeping Israel of God. And thus He and all who are united to Him by faith are recipients of these great promises. Look at the end of chapter 1 again. Chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. What does that sound like? What is that alluding to? That's the Abrahamic covenant. It is. Well, let's continue. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Is this passage of Scripture applied only to the ethnic children of Abraham? Is it tied only to that? I say no, and here's why. Paul quotes the parallel of this passage, chapter 2, verse 23, where it talks about those who were called not my people are my people, which is the same. It's tied to this very text right here. Paul quotes that in Romans when he's talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. Just like James, and we didn't talk about this last week, I avoided it, and I'm coming back to it this week. Just like James last week quotes the end of Amos in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council when they're trying to deal with Gentiles coming into the church, and he goes to a passage that most people say, that's just about Israel. And he says, no, 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 that's about the people who are united to Christ, including the Gentiles. In other words, these promises are for much more than just an ethnic group of people. They are for all people of faith, people of faith in the Son. Verse 11. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. That's referring to Jesus, the one head of the church. And they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. And all of a sudden, that Jezreel, that day of Jezreel, which was negative, has been transformed into something positive. Hosea, friends, is a book about Jesus Christ. As are all the other minor prophets and every other single book in the Old Testament, for that matter. And if it's about Jesus, well then, 
indirectly, it's also about us. So here's my next point. Let us be stunned by our prominent role in this book. Our prominent role. I started off by using an illustration of glasses to help us see better. Let me add to that. What I want us to see is that in this book, you're not Hosea. You and I are Gomer. We need to see that we are Gomer. You read a book, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the Minor Prophets, don't sit there and say, oh yeah, them, those Israelites, I can't believe it. This is about us. If we will stare into the mirror that is the book of Hosea, we will see the deep lines of our own double-facedness. If we stare into the mirror that is the book of Hosea, we will see the unbecoming and disheveled nature of our own adulterous hearts. If we look into the mirror that is the book of Hosea, we will see that we are Gomer. Let us be stunned by our prominent role in this book, for we are Gomer. For this week, this very day, all of us in here have whored after something. We have sought something or someone or some way to make ourselves happy outside of God. Do you want to know what false god you're sleeping with? Ask yourself this question. I would be happy and fulfilled if I could just do, or if I could just have, or if I could just be with, or if I could just get, or if I just go to, or if I could just become. Fill in the blank and you have your lover. How many lovers do we have that we go after instead of God? We are Gomer, but there is glorious good news for all the Gomers of this world. For those of us in here who are believers, there is good news. And for those in here who are unbelievers, there's good news as well. But I beg you to listen to it. I beg you to hear it. I beg you to consider it and to submit to it. And here it is. We are Gomer, but we are Gomer, but our lives, those who are believers in Christ, our lives have been redeemed by God's unrelenting love. Now I want us to finish this, this sermon in chapter 3, okay? Chapter 3, verse 1. And this is coming back to the story of Gomer and Hosea. I want you to look at what Hosea did for Gomer and see what God has done for his children, for us. Here it goes. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Now this is referring to him going back to Gomer. So apparently Gomer has left him. Not only was she, she uh, a prostitute to start off with and she was an adulteress. Now she has abandoned her husband. And, and he says, go, love her again. Let me pick it up right there. It says, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lechet of barley. Apparently Gomer had fallen so low that she had actually been sold into some sort of slavery. Or perhaps she was paying off her debts by practicing prostitution. Regardless, Hosea bought her back. My friends, for those of us in Christ, we have been bought back out of slavery and whoredom. 1 Peter 1, 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And Homer gave it all, just as God gave it all. It says 15 shekels of silver and a Homer and electric a barley. So, so the image here is that he's in an auction house and, and, and Gomer is there and she's being sold. And he says, I'll, I'll, I'll give 12 shekels. And someone else says, I'll give 13. And then someone else says, well, I'll give 14. So, so, so Hosea says, I'll, I'll give 15. And someone says, well, I'll match that. I'll do 15. And Gomer looks to see what else he has and gives it all. He doesn't have any more money. He gives a homer and a lethic of barley. God gave it all, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give, graciously give us all things? And so we are Gomer, but our lives have been redeemed by God's unrelenting love. We are Gomer, but our affections are being redirected by God's unrelenting love. Look at what unrelenting love demands continue in chapter 3. Now look at verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He redeems her and gives her a command not to stray again. Friends, a life that is unchanged by God's redeeming love is a life that doesn't know God's redeeming love. If you've been redeemed, then you've also been renewed and you will want to live differently. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And you will be empowered to live differently. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You were purchased with the blood of Christ and it accomplishes something. It doesn't just get you out of hell for free. It makes you holy. It puts you on a course of holiness. A Christian will battle all his life with a whoring spirit. But it's a battle we gladly fight and we progressively win as we are made into the likeness of the faithful one, of the Israel who never sinned, of Jesus our Lord to whom we've been united. And so we're Gomer. But we've been redeemed, and our affections are being redirected. And finally, our future will be restored by God's unrelenting love. Verse 4 of chapter 3. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This speaks of people that shall return to him, people that will come to him. People who know that God, seek that God, and come after that God, and they fear that God, and they only have one king in their life, and that is the king who is in the line of David, Jesus Christ. 
My friends, this book is filled with new covenant language. The new covenant of the blood of Jesus. A people purchased, redeemed by that blood. A people redirected by that blood. A people restored by that blood. Hosea is talking about much, much more than just an ethnic people of Israel somehow coming back to their land and figuring out how to worship God rightly. He's talking about the Israel of God, Jesus, and the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is glorious good news. It is good news only for those who come to Christ by faith, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of sin. For on that cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath that Hosea describes in this book. Jesus absorbed it on our behalf He absorbed it for his elect, and he gave them his righteousness. So his life, his death, his resurrection becomes ours. That's what this symbolizes, friends. That's why I I passionately believe in this mode of baptism right here. Because it's the only one that pictures what the scriptures say happens to the believer. That we are buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. And so... Those who are united to Jesus, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. We are united to him, the obedient son, the obedient Israel. And so we need to consider these texts. Hosea 13, 14. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Paul refers to that passage in 1 Corinthians. That passage isn't applied to an ethnic people group in the Middle East. It's applied to those who are united to Jesus. Or how about this one? Chapter 6, verse 2. I alluded to it earlier. And after two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy. I believe he's referring to this passage of Scripture right here. Hosea is all about Jesus. So I contend that those who have put their faith in Christ alone for salvation are thereby united to him and are thereby grafted into the true Israel of God. And therefore, these promises are ours. And more than that, we know that Christ sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. And therefore, little by little, year after year, he's kicking out those idols we so easily whore after. Until one day, we are pure and ready for our wedding. Hosea is a book all about Jesus and his unrelenting love for his bride, the church. While we were yet sinners... Whores, Christ died for us. We did nothing to earn it, deserve it. He restores us out of grace. Undeserved mercy, undeserved love from a husband that we've spurned. Do you know what you and I deserve? Well, I didn't have time to read all of the prophetic pronouncements upon Israel. Go and read Hosea if you haven't already this week, and you will see what you and I deserve. But God's love for his elect is undeserved and is unrelenting. Those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus stood in our place to be the obedient people of God. And by faith we are his. He takes our sin. We receive his righteousness. And thereby we are purified so that we can be the bride once again. And we are looking forward to that wedding day. 
And we're looking forward to that knowing God that will last forever. Do you see it? Do you see yourself in Hosea? More importantly, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we close this time and we, we can only beg, Lord, that you somehow used the preaching of the word to affect hearts. Oh God, if anything in here, for the, those who are already Christians, may we simply be on the lookout for the many, many different idols that our flesh wants us to go after, to pursue like a lover. But for those in here who aren't saved, who aren't believers, perhaps they've never even heard a word from the Old Testament. God, I beg, Lord, you'd help them see that despite their unbelief, despite what they think they know or don't know about God, Lord, I pray that you'd help them see through your word that they are a straying wife. They're a prostitute. There are no neutral people in this room. There are either prostitutes or there are prostitutes that have been restored. That's it. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bring gomers to yourself this morning. Purchase them. Clean them up and send them out with a task to preach your redeeming love to the rest of the world. So God, we thank you now. We close this time in a time of response and singing. God, help us to focus on Jesus. Help us to focus on Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.